we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands, just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Gregori, an executive director of the Center. And today we have in studio Helen Andrews, who's an editor at the American Conservative Magazine, has written some on immigration, also has some life experience that would be interesting for listeners, I think. And she wrote a piece not that long ago that we'll link in the show notes on the issue of H-1Bs supposedly departing for Canada. And that, you know, kind of sparked the idea. I think it would be good to have Helen in studio and talk immigration with her. So thanks for coming in, Helen. Thanks for having me. And if you could just start by kind of giving us the background on who you are and what you do and why are you here? I'm a senior editor at the magazine, The American Conservative. We were founded by Pat Buchanan. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary. So from the identity of our founder, you can probably guess our magazine's position on immigration. We are staunchly restrictionist. Not to interrupt there, but I have no problem with being called restrictionist or anything else that makes sense. But I actually like realism and restraint (laughs) in immigration, which is for those who aren't privy to this sort of thing, that's a description for sort of foreign policy, realism and restraint as well. But I think it applies in the immigration field as well. That's right. Our foreign policy, we we tried very hard to stop calling ourselves isolationists and to stop other people calling us isolationists because right. that just doesn't sound very good. It's not very appealing. It's not even true. I mean, honestly. Right. You know, yeah. It's not. Japan in the 1600s, that was isolationism. <laughs> nobody in, nobody out. Anyway, go ahead. I don't yeah, I don't think interrupt. anybody's proposing that for yeah. the U.S. right now. So if you want to do a rebrand for that yeah. on immigration policy, I think that's a good idea. Anyway, sorry to go off the rails, but no. go ahead. You're the editor at American Conservative. That's right. And most people, when they think about the immigration issue, think of the border and Hispanic immigration. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, so the part of the state that has the Research Triangle Park. So my lived experience, as the left would say, involves more contact with high-skilled immigration. And that's something that gets ignored in a lot of policy conversations because it's not something a lot of people think about. But I think it's just as important. So that's my background. Yeah, absolutely. And you wrote a post on this issue that there's been news coverage of H-1Bs who haven't been able to get their green card, you know, people from India, especially because of per country limits, something we've talked about some in earlier episodes. And so they have faced long wait periods. And so there was breathless news coverage that these jewels of technology knowledge are hightailing it to Canada and, you know, the uh, Canucks are going to eat our lunch, technology, et cetera. So it's kind of a narrative that not only that do tech lobbyists weave that narrative, but the media just swallows it up uh, unquestioningly. And so you were kind of raising your hand and saying, well, you know, maybe that's not true. You uh, entitled it. And I assume as the editor, you also write the headlines 
which you don't always get to do if you're a writer, and called it Farewell H-1Bs. And so if you could just tell us sort of what your thoughts were on that. Yes, farewell H-1Bs. Good luck to you. (laughs) I wish you the best in Canada. That news cycle about Canada eating our lunch by offering visas to laid-off H-1B workers from Silicon Valley was a perfect example of the misconceptions that exist surrounding H-1Bs. The H-1B visa was supposed to be a temporary visa for highly skilled workers working at wages comparable to those prevailing domestically. As it works out in practice, it is neither temporary nor highly skilled nor for comparable wages. Right. People think of these workers as having very special skills that Americans simply don't have, when in fact, a lot of the H-1Bs that come to the United States are ordinary tech workers. It's a way for tech companies to engage in outsourcing without actually outsourcing. It's the outsourcing visa. Right, right. So Canada's effort to get all of these people, the way you put it is the the joke's going to be on them. And I think there's something to that because the people who are laid off and not able to find another job, because that's kind of the issue is that your H-1B will lapse if you lose your job and then within a certain number of, uh, I forget, is it 60 days or yeah, 60 days to find another job? They're probably not the best and brightest because if they were, any rational manager would say, well, okay, I'm going to get rid of this H-1B that I've had all along who isn't really all that sharp and go and pick up these Einsteins. That's right. That is a perfect example where just looking at the facts, the facts are telling you that these H-1B workers are, they're not terrible, but they're not all that special. This is not a visa for special people. Exactly. We had another set of facts come in recently that demonstrated the exact same thing, where the new round of H-1Bs, the winners of the lottery, were announced recently. And I believe almost 25%, 23% of H-1B applications that were approved in the lottery and extended to employers were turned down by the employers that applied for them. They said, oh, our guy won? Well, we don't want him anymore. Right. And that is, on the one hand, demonstrating that these employers are applying for visas on behalf of people who aren't actually that special, who they can live without. It's not like they've got this one guy and they really, really want him, but he, unfortunately, he happens to be French or whatever. And it's also a big red flag demonstrating a problem that has developed recently in the H-1B process, which is that these Indian consultancy firms are colluding and all applying for, you know, the same individual is having H-1B applications filed on his behalf by multiple companies. So they're swamping the lottery with a million applications on behalf of individuals with duplicate applications. Right. And even without the duplicate applications thing, employers are just, because it's a lottery, it's almost like an arms race kind of thing. In other words, they're submitting more and more applications, hoping that they'll, you know, some higher percentage of theirs will get approved, which is why the whole concept of lottery is absurd. Do it by salary so that the one guy that your small firm wants, you actually have a chance of getting him. Whereas if you're going up against Tata, for instance, one of these big, or Infosys, one of these big body shops, they have banks of lawyers and they'll submit, you know, tens of thousands of applications. You don't have any chance. Now, I'm not sympathetic to the H-1B thing altogether. I mean, the whole thing is kind of a scam. But if anybody 
intends to use it the way it was supposed to be used, which is to say for a you know unique, unusual person that really will increase the productive capacity of your company, basing it on highest salary rather than lottery is much more likely to be able to get those people rather than the basically kind of white collar bracero farm workers is sort of what it amounts to now. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you grew up in Raleigh and there were a lot of high skilled immigrants there. I, were there any sort of experiences, anecdotes, anything that helped shape your thinking on immigration from where you grew up? Sure. When I think about the H-1B phenomenon, anytime you're thinking about a policy question like this, you want to start by asking the scale of the issue. Right. And H-1Bs, there are 85,000 a year. There are a little over half a million in the United States at any one time. But a lot of those people do end up getting green cards. So when you think about who is affected by the H-1B visa program, you can think about it in terms of concentric circles. Okay. At the center is the people who work in those industries, in the tech industries, and they're competing economically with these visa holders. Right. So that's where you see the economic effects. Next concentric circle out is people who live in communities and cities where a lot of H-1B visa holders move. That's people Silicon in California. Silicon Valley or Raleigh. Or in Raleigh. The research triangle, right. And that's where you see the cultural effects of the H-1B visa. Interesting. And then the next concentric circle out is the entire country because H-1B visas have had a huge demographic effect on the United States. The number of Indian Americans in 1990 was less than 500,000. Mm-hmm. They were a very small proportion of, of even Asian Americans, not to mention the American population at large, whereas now South Asian Americans or Americans of South Asian descent, over 6 million. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a huge increase from 1990 to today. So in the mm-hmm. course of a generation, the population has increased. And that's not all H-1Bs, but H-1B is one of the major drivers of that's that right. particular kind of immigration. Mm-hmm. In a similar sense, to the farm worker flows were a major driver of Mexican immigration. And there's all kinds. In other words, refugee resettlement was a major driver for Somali immigration. And so often what happens with these things is a particular policy will spark a flow, which then at some point, just because people who they are, gets its own momentum as people bring relatives, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I believe if you look at the counties with the top five share of the population being Indian American, I think in the top five or certainly in the top 10 was the district adjacent to mine growing up. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people know about the economic effects of high levels of immigration. It reduces wages, it makes it harder for American workers to compete. But the cultural angle is something that a lot of people don't think about, especially in terms of high-skilled immigration. When most people think about the cultural effects of immigration and cultural assimilation, they're thinking of metrics like educational attainment, the or you know, assimilating into welfare use, that kind of stuff. Right. And on all of these metrics, high-skilled immigrants are doing better than natives. Right. But there are cultural changes that are noticeable and that do affect these communities. Recently, I picked up a book, what was it called? Trespassers, Asian Americans and the Fight for Suburbia. But it's just an anthropological study of the city of Fremont, which is a Silicon Valley suburb, Mm -hmm. and a high school there that went from 85% white to 85% Asian, and describing in very dispassionate terms the changes that that resulted in. One of them was canceling the football team 
That was almost the first thing that happened wow. when the school became predominantly Asian. Because the, what did the guy say? He was like, it was like selling electricity to the Amish. That's what the football <laughs> coach said, trying to get the Asian students there interested in the football program. They just didn't have any time for it. And on a slightly more sobering note, there were many reports of harassment. That is, some of the last white students who were about to transfer out to a different high school said, I just don't like going to this high school anymore because every day people tell me you're white, you're dumb. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Which is just not not the kind of thing. Uh, the parents of the white students are encouraging their kids to transfer to a less Asian high school because they want their kids to be more well-rounded. They right. don't like the exclusively academic focus. That was certainly something that I saw reflected in my high school, which I think was about 50-50 mm -hmm. Asian students and, and white students. Another cultural effect, which is harder to talk about because it's a little bit sensitive, but which is important, is that in the education systems in India and China, cheating is just a lot more acceptable. It's not frowned upon to the same extent. And I remember the valedictorian of my high school was an Asian American kid, a kid of Chinese descent, and he was disqualified from speaking at our graduation ceremony because he was found to have, what did he do? He wanted to apply to one of the military academies. Right. And to do that, you need a letter of recommendation for your congressman. So he had forged a letter of recommendation from his teacher to the congressman's office. Oh, interesting. And when the congressman sent a thank you note to the teacher, the teacher said, what letter? Right, right. And so he got caught. He got busted. But it would never have occurred to me to even think that that kind of forgery was a problem. Right, right. But that's something that a lot of schools are having to cope with now. And so, I mean, what that really highlights is that numbers matter. Somebody has referred to this as demographic conservatism. In other words, not political conservatism, but change is inevitable. You never step in the same river twice. All of that is true. But it seems to me prudence in immigration and in many other things, but in immigration argues for slower change rather than faster change. And that's always been our concern. It's not really the characteristics of the individual immigrants that's necessarily the issue because how do you even test for that kind of thing? I mean, there are going to be some Indian kids who really do want to play on a football team. Numbers matter so that the changes that in this case immigration brings about are slower, more modest, easier to address both for the receiving society and for the immigrants themselves. That's a real issue. People are uncomfortable talking about it. Politicians are uncomfortable talking about it. Often they'll fall back, and I don't mean this in any cynical sense, but they'll often fall back on economic or fiscal arguments, which are real arguments, and I'm perfectly prepared to concede that they believe the arguments, but they're easier to talk about than concerns about numbers just being too high and the assimilation consequences of that. So sort of kind of a little bit along those lines, obviously American conservative is immigration skeptics. You're realist and you favor realism and restraint in immigration. But, you know, there are tensions, not just in the Republican Party, but even among people who self-described conservatives on immigration. Has that expressed itself at all? in the magazine among your writers and stuff or is there pretty much consensus on this issue 
There is a divide within conservatism on the issue of immigration, not so much at TAC. At TAC, we're all on right. the same page. Even on high skilled, because Even that's often where you see it. Okay, good. And I have to say, I think the reason why you see the divide within conservatism shake itself out in high skilled in particular is, to be honest, there are a lot of people who feel bad about wanting to restrict immigration because the left is telling them that it's mean and racist to care about these kinds of things. So as a way of compensating for being the bad guy on low-skilled immigration, they say, well, I'm going to avoid all of those unfair charges that the left lobs at people who care about immigration on the right by saying, well, in compensation, I'm in favor of high-skilled immigration because they think that it avoids the problems that low-skilled immigration poses, when in fact it really does the same thing, just in a different part right. of the economy. I mean, there are, there are, and there are some differences, clearly, in the effect, but I always call that the legal good, illegal bad approach. And to my surprise, Senator Cruz, whom you know I like, generally speaking, at one point publicly, I think maybe even on the floor of the Senate, said, my immigration policy is four words, legal good, illegal bad. And I was like, Senator, I mean, I didn't talk to him, but I was like, That's, that was a joke. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think that's this definitely there. Now, as far as talking about tensions, on some issues like foreign policy issues, you all have reached out to sometimes, to some degree, folks on the left. I mean, I think, didn't you run a like an interview with Noam Chomsky, I think, at one point about foreign policy issues? So my question here on immigration is, have you found any, maybe it's a rhetorical question, but have you found any ability to do outreach or willingness to talk among people who aren't already in the AMCON, American conservative circle, on immigration? The short answer is no. Yeah. Well. Uh, our magazine, we were Trumpist before Trump. We hit his three big issues, which were the same three big Buchananite issues. We're against endless foreign wars. We're for sensible trade policy. And we're hardline on immigration. On the first two, you're absolutely right that we have reached across the aisle from the left and gotten a lot of good feedback. We published Noam Chomsky on foreign policy. We've published Ralph Nader on trade. We're right on the same page with him on that. On immigration, there's nobody on the left who's willing to come over to our side even a little bit. And I note one thing that we haven't talked about yet is the political effects of high-skilled immigration. But it has not escaped the notice of the Democratic Party that high-skilled immigrants, you know, uh, Chinese-American voters, Indian-American voters, vote for Democrats 70-30. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, 40-point advantage, sometimes more, for Democrats. So the more high-skilled immigrants we bring into the United States, the more Democratic voters there are going to be. And so I can't blame them for not turning that down. And frankly, they're more likely to vote, too. I mean, you know, let's just say Central American, relatively less educated Central American immigrants, when they go through the whole naturalization process and actually register and actually show up to vote, their propensity to do that is just a lot lower than people who are higher skilled. They're more likely to actually get, first of all, they're more likely to be legal. They're more likely to have green cards and more likely to follow up by getting citizenship and then registering to vote and then actually showing up or mailing in or however you're supposed to vote nowadays. But RFK Jr. sort of briefly made some noises about at least the border 
being concerned about that, even though he said, "And but we need to increase legal immigration, which didn't surprise me at all. Did you all, I mean, am I misremembering or did you all have any outreach to RFK Jr.? The current print issue that you will see if you go to a newsstand, if mm-hmm. they have newsstands anymore, I'm not know. sure they do, yeah, I'm not sure. but if they do, and if you find one that has the American conservative on it, the current issue that you will see has as its cover piece an interview with RFK Jr. Mm-hmm. We sent one of our reporters out there to see what's up with this guy and came back with a relatively favorable profile, about as favorable as you might expect for somebody who's a Democrat in a magazine called The American Conservative. But I think he walked back his border comments pretty quickly. Interesting. Okay. That really is, it is one issue where the enforcement within the Democratic Party is pretty strict. It's like a litmus test, almost like abortion. You really can't, you know, stray. That's interesting. Very interesting. And just, I mean, we'll have a link, but it's, what's the web address uh, for the the website of the magazine? Theamericanconservative.com. Okay. Isn't it also Amcon Mag? That's our Twitter handle. Oh, I see. So at Amcon Mag. Okay. Very good. So you said you grew up in North Carolina. But you also lived for a number of years in Australia. If you could sort of not just tell us a little bit about that, but what, because immigration obviously is a hot issue there, boat people especially, but also even higher skilled, you know, foreign students and what have you. What did you see in Australia? How how was it similar to here? What was different? That kind of thing. Uh, Yeah, I married an Australian. And so we moved back to Sydney where he grew up and I lived there for almost 10 years. And for a large portion of that time, I was I was working at Sydney's preeminent conservative think tank, which is the Center for Independent Studies. So same acronym. Great. Uh, yeah. CIS. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you're fighting over Twitter handles for who's going to be at CIS. So I, I was involved in politics and policy discussions in Australia. It was a really exciting time. Australia is, I believe, the normal sized country that has the highest share of its population that is foreign born. I mean, so, you know, not other than like Vatican City, Liechtenstein or someplace like that, right? Which is very high, but the normal, normal sized country, about a third, about a third of Australians are foreign born. And if you include children of immigrants, obviously the number is even higher than that. So immigration has been a huge issue. And I moved there in 2013, 2014, which was just in time for a big national election in which illegal immigration played a huge role. Tony Abbott was the conservative politician running to be prime minister. And he was the only person in that race who was going to solve illegal immigration as a problem. As a newcomer to Australia, I was astonished to hear that illegal immigration was a problem for them because I looked around and I said, aren't you guys an island? You are surrounded by a giant ocean. What border are people coming over? But primarily Indonesian people smugglers were bringing people over by boat. And these people- Because Indonesia's right basically is next door. It's just that there's some ocean in between. Right. And a lot of the people claiming to be refugees were from Sri Lanka Iran, Afghanistan, so kind of from that corner of the world, funneled down to Indonesia and then coming to Australia. So they weren't Indonesians pouring across the border. It was people coming through Indonesia, kind of like the way people are coming through Mexico now. Right. And to be fair, at that time, the Sri Lankan civil war was happening. So the idea that there would be refugees from there, not outrageous, ditto Iran and Afghanistan. But it was becoming 
the refugee flows, the, the boats were more and more people were coming every year. I think it peaked at about 20,000 per year, which is not a small number for a country with a population the size of Australia. Which it's about three days worth at our border now I, under I, Biden. But anyway, yes. But back then it was a huge deal. <laughs> right. And the left wing party there, which is the Labour Party, was kind of throwing up their hands and didn't really know what to do. And they were really stalling the immigration conversation in Australia with exactly the same methods that the left uses here, playing on sob stories, refusing to think about it in any kind of rational way at all. And Tony Abbott said, I will stop the boats. And the Labour Party said, you can't possibly do that. People are, these are desperate people. They're going to keep coming, whether you try to stop them or not. And he said, nope, I'll do it. I promise. In my election promise, I will stop the boats. And he did. He was elected in 2013. And the number of illegal immigrants arriving by boat in Australia went from 20,000 to zero. <laughs> and what did he do? It's a, a playbook that has now been imitated by other countries because it works so well. The first thing he did was create an advertisement with the, a wonderful, uh, what's the name of it? He had a great Scottish, Angus Campbell, General Angus Campbell, who was right. the head of Operation Sovereign Borders. And it was a video ad and also a magazine ad that they just papered all over everywhere that these migrants might go in Indonesia. And the message was really simple. If you arrive by boat without a visa, you will not be settled in Australia. So in other words, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. This will, you might be resettled somewhere else, but you will not be resettled here. So don't even try. I remember those. It was a blue background with the ocean and red letters. It was really striking, actually. Angus Campbell's a very distinctive looking guy, very mm -hmm. authoritative. So he, they really picked the right casting for this. But that simple message of saying there is going to be no upside in this for you was sufficiently discouraging that people stopped trying to arrive. Yeah, but they made it stick. That's the thing. I mean, we run ads in Central America saying, you know, you will you will be subject to deportation. It's like, well, they get it. It's all baloney. In this case, they followed through. Right. They followed through. They also followed through in turning around boats. Mm -hmm. That is, even if, as sometimes happened, your people smugglers got the boat closer, you know, into Australian waters and then scuttled it. And right. so the Australian rescue boat save the people. had yeah. to come and pick everybody up. They would not bring them back to Australia. They would send them back. And some of that involved no longer reporting incidents at sea. That is, there was just a, a complete media blackout. The Operation Sovereign Borders it was the name of this operation that General Campbell was uh, in charge of. And any press inquiries, such as, did you encounter a boat? How many people were there? Did you have to rescue them? They would just say, we do not discuss, discuss operational matters and complete media blackout, which meant that the left no longer had any sob stories that they could run with, which turned out to do the trick. The other thing they did was they set up these camps on two island nations that were, you know, not Australia. I mean, they were, it wasn't even like Guantanamo where it's Cuba, but it's really, we own the place. These were actually on countries, small nearby countries. And the interesting thing is they were beyond what our Remain in Mexico program is. Because even under Trump, the Remain in Mexico program, the Migrant Protection Protocol, as they were called, still permitted you to apply for asylum in the United States. You just had to wait on the other side of the border for your hearing date. So they didn't just let you go. 
But at a recent panel we had with Trump's ambassador to Mexico, Chris Landau, he was there at the time and he said, you know, why are we even doing this? Why are they even being allowed to apply for asylum in the United States? And this is what Australia did was you don't get to even apply. They will provide for you on these two island camps. And if I remember correctly, they had an arrangement with Cambodia, which said they would take, you know, they would give asylum to any of these people who wanted it. Of course, they didn't want to go to Cambodia. Nobody's going to be persecuting them there, but they were just regular immigrants using asylum as a dodge, as a gambit to get into, in this case, Australia. Same thing we see here. This is why I think what we need is remain in Paraguay or something to that effect where you aren't even allowed to apply. If, in other words, the same thing. If you arrive by boat or you sneak across the border, you may be a legitimate asylum seeker. We make no you know, assertions or, or claims one way or the other. You just don't get to apply, but you will be afforded protection in Paraguay and, or wherever. I mean, I'm just, I just like the name of Paraguay because it's funny. And then you know, we can make arrangements with them that they'll give you asylum. And if you genuinely are fleeing persecution, you will grab whatever life preserver is available rather than pick and choose. And actually, the Europeans have taken up or trying to, a couple of them, the Danes and the British follow the Australian model. And what they've done is they, and their courts are still standing in the way, but they have uh, basically what amounts to remain in Rwanda, where they're going to send you to Rwanda if you illegally enter either of those countries and you can apply for asylum there. But again, you're not getting it in the country that you were trying to immigrate to for non-humanitarian, for conventional immigration reasons. That's why I have so much respect for Tony Abbott as a politician, because so much of the immigration debate depends on what is the the type of propaganda they call demoralization, where they say, you know, we would love to stop the boats if we could, but we can't. It right. can't be done. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, that's something they always say. Sort of uh, they, lie back and think of Australia. Kind that's of right. Yeah. And Tony Abbott proved that it can be done and mm-hmm. it can be done humanely, which is why he's now, I guess, in his retirement, going around to countries like Britain and Denmark and saying, don't let anybody tell you illegal immigration by boat to your country is some unstoppable force that no policy solution could possibly solve. You can solve it. You can solve it humanely. We did it. The issue, though, always is sustaining the political will to do that. You moved back to the U.S. a number of years ago, but was that will waning in Australia by the time you left, or how did that? What, what was the situation? Unfortunately, for the left in Australia, once Tony Abbott proved that the boats could be stopped, they found it politically impossible to reverse. Interesting. So Interesting. today, I believe even. They've got a left-wing government now, which came in a little bit after COVID, but they have still found it impossible to reverse the zero tolerance policy. That is the, if you come by boat without a visa, you will not be settled in Australia. They had to sign on to that. Because they had proof of concept, basically. The, the public would say, well, what do you mean? It worked before. Interesting, interesting. Unfortunately, here we're having, you know, in a sense, Trump didn't really solve the illegal immigration problem, but he did stabilize the border. There's no question. And so, you know, you can stabilize the border. My sense, I mean, what the administration seems to be saying in response to basically people pointing and saying, look, it was a lot better under Trump, is that, well, it's, you know, global warming and uh, whatever it is, and there's more 
I don't know, tumult and I don't know, transphobia and whatever it is, there's all these other reasons this thing is happening to us. And again, there's nothing we can do about it. Even in Australia, the most vivid memory I have of the state of their immigration debate, this was during, this was, I think, pre-Abbott just a little bit, was watching their Question Time TV show, their weekly political panel show, which usually has one MP from the Labor Party and one MP from the Liberal Party and various other pundits. I did it a couple of times. It's a lot of fun. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But one of the left-wing people, I swear this is as low as it got there, pulled out a crayon picture of a family and a palm tree and like the mom was crying or something. It was like, this was drawn by a refugee child who just wants to get off the island of Nauru (laughs) and out of the detention center and come to Australia. Right. I'm sitting there thinking, that's, wow, the the shamelessness of that. Yeah, but it it works sometimes. I know it works. I know it works. here very well, actually, that kind of thing. So we're getting to the end of our time, but you were basically a temporary immigrant because you weren't there. You left after a number of years, but you were essentially an immigrant in Australia. You weren't a tourist. You were there almost 10 years. What was it like for an American being an immigrant in a foreign country for you? It was interesting seeing it from the other side. Although, as I said before, with uh, immigration being such a huge issue in Australia, they really go out of their way to be welcoming. They've really assimilated the American idea of being a melting pot and uh, a nation of immigrants and all of that. Although, I, mm, I am really glad that I left Australia when I did, because it was just, I squeaked out by a hair and I missed COVID. Because Australia, as people will probably remember, was the most locked down country in the world. They were not letting any people in. They were also not letting people out, which was really bizarre. So you would have been stuck there for three years. I would have been stuck there. Three more years. Yeah. yeah, My husband, I I was very anti-lockdown. So my husband jokes that I would have gone Mad Max and they would have been (laughs) hunting me down in the interior while I led a rebel army, something like that. But no, they had... They were building quarantine camps to put people in. And I figure once you're building camps, you really got to stay, you know, do a timeout and figure out where you are as a country. But I was on, on the one hand shocked at how indifferent or how placidly the Australian public tolerated all of these insane lockdown restrictions, mm-hmm. even after it was shown that they were not backed by science. You know, and they were exceptionally strict. You had to check in and check out with your Vax Pass when you went to the grocery store to buy groceries. Jeez. It was really, really. And Melbourne was the worst of all. You all were in Sydney, though, right? We were in yeah. Sydney, so it would have been a little bit less bad. But Melbourne was just dystopian. Interesting. I you know, was Interesting. getting updates from people that we knew who lived there. And that's alarming to have any population of people that resembles your own country, except what is effectively a totalitarian imposition. Right. And I was thinking about why is that so? And I have to wonder whether or not having 30% of your population be foreign born makes it more likely that people will sort of shrug and say, well, okay. Or if it's the fact that many of the immigrants who live in Australia come from countries where more deference to the government is their attitude. They're not from you know, rebellious, truculent, you know, Scots-Irish type immigrant background. Right. So whether or not that played a role in allowing Australia to go down the very dark detour they went through during COVID, it's something I think about. 
just as a last point, I mean, we're over time here, but for Americans, I mean, we're incredibly parochial, and but we have these sort of stereotypes of other countries. And for us, Australia is, you know, crocodile Dundee and koala bears and deported criminals, which is the original stock of the population. I assume it's there's not a lot of crocodile Dundee going on down there, right? No. My, my <laughs> husband told me that he rode a kangaroo to school. <laughs> And I think he was watching to see if I would believe it. I did not. (laughs) He did not. It was not a real thing. But that is one thing. The Australian self-image is still very crocodile Dundee. Interesting. We don't listen to authority. We do our own thing. We're self-reliant. Until there's COVID. (laughs) Right. And I I don't want to ever hear that from them again. Because you do not get to call yourself the cool, rebellious former convict country if people said you can't leave your house and you said, okay. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, Helen Andrews, thank you for coming in. We're going to have links to your magazine and to some of these other things we've been talking about today. And keep us abreast of what's going on, and uh, we will look forward to having you back. Thanks a lot. That's it for this week's Parsing Immigration Policy. If you liked what you heard or didn't like what you heard, rank and review us on your podcast platform if it permits that. And in any case, Email us at center at cis.org if you have ideas for future programs, compliments, criticisms, what have you. So until next time, this is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center and your host for Parsing Immigration Policy. 